Good morning, everyone. It is indeed a blessing to be here, to be at uh, the Downers Grove Church, not quite on its 50th year anniversary for the building, but it is, uh, it's, uh, you know, as one who grew up in Chicago, I always knew about Downers Grove, but I never made it here until Broadview Academy. And uh, it is just a great reminder about how God leads in ways that we would never have expected. Because uh, when I left Broadview, I said, I will never come back to Illinois. <laughs> and then God smiled. And on the eighth day, he moved me back to Illinois. And so it is truly a blessing to be able to be here and to share the word of God with each of you and to know that uh, regardless of what we have planned, God has his plans. And uh, tomorrow, as probably many of you know, we begin our, the first step of our, con our constituency meeting. Uh, it is our organizing committee that meets tomorrow. And uh, I thank uh, the two individuals that represent this church, David Dye and, and Joe, who will be there. Uh, and so thank you again for being a part of, and it's really not part of the Illinois Conference that I want to thank you for. It's being part of the faithfulness to follow God and his kingdom because that supersedes our conference. And so it's just a blessing to be able to be here. Shall we pray? So God in heaven, we are so grateful to you that you have given us first off your son, Jesus Christ. And you have left behind a testimony of his life so that we may be strengthened wherever we may be. So now God, as we look into your word, I pray for your words, not mine. Your heart, not mine. Your thoughts, not mine, so that when we leave here, we will have seen Jesus. This is my prayer in his name. Amen. I was conducting a week of prayer in one of our local boarding high schools, and uh, it was a great opportunity to share what the scriptures mean uh, to that age group. High school kids are just a, a delight to be around. And uh, I had the opportunity to do that, and one of the uh, things that I enjoyed the best was not necessarily speaking to these high school kids, although that was great. What I enjoyed best was actually going into the classrooms and having the opportunity to hear the questions that the high schoolers had on their mind. And I say that because uh, I, I'm learning as I get older that it's easy for us as adults to speak long enough and loud enough that our kids never get a chance to ask a question. And I realize what a privilege it is to be able to hear the questions that our high school students had. So every time I get an opportunity to do that, I did it. And so in this particular occasion, uh, I was in the Bible class, and I heard uh, the high school student, 15-year-old girl in the back, raise her hand. And she said, Pastor John, can I ask you a question? I said, sure, that's why I'm here. She said, you have spoken about love uh, so far this week. But my question is this, she said, at 15 years old. She said, I am 15 years old, and you talk about love, but my question is, how can I know what love is if I've never experienced it in my life? At 15 years old. And I thought to myself, that is perhaps the central question of life. In, Matthew, I'm sorry, in, Mark, in John chapter 4, 
You've heard the passage read. I want to go back to it. Probably every person in this room here today is very familiar with this passage. So those of you who like closure, you know, those of you who read and actually finish a book, those kinds of people, you are going to be frustrated by my message today because I am not going to get to the end of the story. So I just want to let you know up front that we are not going to get to the end of the story today. So if that's going to, I'm asking for your forgiveness before I finish the message. Because we will not get to the end of the story. My name is not Paul Harvey. I want us to focus on the beginning of the story. Because I believe in the world that we live in today that this message, that this story has so many profound messages embedded into it that we could spend from now until this evening, which is what uh, your pastor told me the time I did have. So if you don't like that, talk with him. But I'll honor your time better than he honors your time. And I can say that because he's not here. And I can also say that because that's Kent and he deserves it. <laughs> but I say that because this is such a rich story that one of the challenges we have, and especially if you have grown up in any kind of church environment, one of the challenges we have is that we read the story, we become so familiar with it that we miss the story. So one of the things I tried to do, and I'm going to invite you to do with me today, is we are going to embed ourselves into the story, but not get very far. And there's a reason why. So, John chapter 4, and we'll begin with verse 1, and I will be reading uh, from the Revised Standard Version. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John... I like the parenthetical statement here. Though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples. He left, verse 3, Judea and departed again to Galilee. In verse 4, he needed to go through Samaria. Now most of us read that passage and we're very familiar with it. And we are in a hurry to get to the main part of the story. But I want to suggest to you this morning that this part of the story is actually very, very important and very, very pertinent to the world that we live in today for a lot of reasons. But it would be like me saying this to you this morning, that in order for me to get to Minnesota, I have to go through Ohio. So when the writer says that Jesus had to go from Judea, which is in the south, up to Galilee, which is in the north, for him to have to go through Samaria, that would have been, to the reader of that century, that would have been a clue that uh, there is something about this story that makes it different than geography, because people who know the geography would say, there is no way that you have to go through Samaria. But then there's a second element, and that's where I want to focus on today. Verse 5, so he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Verse 6, now Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. I, 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 like I said, I could tell we could dive into this forever and ever, which is why eternity is going to be awesome. I say this because uh, there is something about, not, not necessarily for this reason, 
Uh, in other words, the Gospel of John is my favorite gospel, but not because it bears my name. Uh, the Gospel of John is so rich. And let me share with you in a brief moment why I think it is rich. And I would also add, I think it's a very significant book for Seventh-day Adventists and for people who live in the end of time. And there's a reason why. Because even though Revelation is the last book in the Bible, it is widely believed by most scholars who study the scriptures that actually John was written after the book of Revelation. So that Revelation was not the last book that John wrote. It was perhaps the Gospel of John or one of the epistles, 1st, 2nd, or 3rd John. Number two is the fact that John was written after all of the other Gospels, meaning that perhaps somewhere around the time of about somewhere between 95 and 105 A.D., about 60 years after the death of Jesus, John wrote this Gospel. So by that time, the church had developed, or the followers of Jesus had developed as a community over 60 years, John was perhaps aware of the other Gospels, and thus John writes a Gospel that is radically different than the other three Gospels that are contained in our Scriptures. In fact, when you study the Gospel of John, and I had a class in the Gospel of John in, in my uh, master's program, and I will tell you that it changed the way I read Scriptures, and it changed it forever. It was though I had gone from an eight-track tape to a flash drive. The scriptures exploded when I took that class. And one of the things I realized, not just in that class, but subsequent study of the scriptures, is that John wrote his gospel different than the other gospels to the tune of about 75% of the material that is in John's gospel is not found in the other gospels. And as it says at the end of the book, John chose these stories for a very particular purpose. And I want to suggest to you this morning that there were multiple purposes, but one of them is going to be my focus as we continue moving forward. John was the last gospel that was written and included, in, not included in scripture as the last included, but it was the last gospel written. And I believe it's because he saw something in the developing community of followers of Jesus that he said and he felt and led by the Spirit had to be addressed. And I'm going to tell you, my brothers and sisters, I believe that what John saw at the end of the first century, heading into the second century, is particular to us today for a whole set of different reasons, but equally as important. So John writes his gospel. The story that we are reading in this chapter and chapter 4 is not found in the other three gospels. It's only in the story of John. And there's a reason. Now, let's continue to the very next verse, and this is where those of you who would like to end will be frustrated, because these are the verses I'm ending with today. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Verse 8, For his disciples had gone away in the city to buy food. Oh, okay, Pastor, can you move on? There's nothing there. I believe there's a lot there. Jesus, in doing what he did in this moment in the story, 
sends a message that probably many of us don't recognize today. I will give you kind of a common example, I should say a more recent example than this story as to why what he says here is so vital and so important. When I was doing my master's program, one of my quarters, I believe it was my seventh quarter at Andrews, uh, I had the privilege and opportunity to go and spend that quarter, all of the quarter, so it was about four months, in Israel, studying. What a privilege that is. Uh, unlike the experience I'm going to have in a few months when we take many of our pastors to the, what we call you know, the Holy Land, I'm not into 10-day excursions very much because you fly through everything. I got to live and sit and breathe and dwell in that place. So, for example, we went to the Temple Mound and we read the book of Ezekiel while we sat on the Temple Mound and we read the descriptions of Jerusalem during the time of the writer Ezekiel while we sat there. We didn't have to hurry to get into a bus to go to the next place. So one of our experiences, we had the opportunity to go to the area of Samaria. So we got on a bus to go to Samaria. Actually, we got on two vans to go to Samaria. And we started the trip down, went up into the area, and this was during the time in uh, Israel and Palestinian history called the Intifada. The Intifada in Arabic, as I understand it, means the uprising, which meant that there were frequently... Um, there were frequently different types of violence that was taking place throughout the country when we were there. So we got in our vehicles. We finally got to the area where the Samaritan rooms are, ruins are. We started to ascend up to the top where you eventually park. Then you get out to walk to the rest so you could see the ruins of Samaria. During, and those ruins exist from the time of uh, this time period. So as we got to the top, we realized on the road... There was these huge boulders that had been spread across the road, and there was no way that we could continue to where we needed to continue. And like I said, we both, both our vehicles got up, stopped, realized we couldn't do it. And as we stopped there, suddenly we heard, and then, and then. And sure enough, we looked up, and there were several high school students, I'm going to presume, who were practicing their experience of being only a boy named David. Meaning they had slingshots in their hands on the top of the hill and they were doing this and throwing rocks about this size at our vehicles. And throwing would be a mild way of saying it. The good news was they weren't as accurate as David. So, yes, it would hit parts of our vehicle, but we realized, well, we've got a situation here. Our drivers did. Both, both drivers were not from our group. They lived there in, in the area. So they quickly backed down and quickly began to figure out a way how we were going to get out of here before we had any broken windows. So sure enough, they maneuvered quickly. The rocks kept coming. Luckily, many of them missed, but enough of them hit. So we got out of there, and we said, well, so much for the Samaritan ruins today. We're not going to be able to see them. And we didn't. Still haven't seen them to this day. So we made our way back into another part of uh, Palestine, or what is known today as the West Bank. We went through the West Bank, and we went to the area of what is called Solomon's Pools. So I can still remember, as clear as, as if it were yesterday, driving down the road in our vans, 
And as we were driving down the road, I noticed to the right where the Solomon's pools, and I could look out the windows, and I could see all of these kids, junior high kids, maybe some high school kids, all playing along the, uh, the pools there. And then I began to look at the road that we were driving on, and we weren't driving very fast. In fact, we were going rather slow, and there was a reason why, and, there was, and that was because there was a lot of broken glass on the road. And then I looked more closer, I looked closer at the broken glass and discovered that you, it was actually broken glass from either broken windshields or, win, or windows of vehicles. And then our drivers realized, we can't stay here. So our drivers got, not to the end of the road, but they got far enough, so then they did a U-turn to come back on that road. And as they were coming back, those kids that were over here, they were making their way towards the road where we were driving. So I have a friend of mine who has the gift of never meeting a stranger, Rod, but his name wasn't Rod. Never met a stranger in his life. He had spent one year, uh, a couple years before that, uh, as a student missionary in Nazareth, and as I always used to joke with him, he learned enough Arabic to be dangerous. So he decided, let me out, let me out. So we opened the van, he ran out, and he started walking towards where those about 30 or 40 of these kids were. He ran up there, got close to them, and as he uh, started talking with them as he could, his best Arabic, that uh, was probably not very good, but well enough, and with his demeanor and everything else, pretty soon as we were walking, as we were driving back towards the beginning of that road, he brought forth all of those kids, and he had this big smile on his face, and they were all smiling, no mangoes yet at the time, but they were still smiling. And he said, don't worry, I've talked with them, we're good. In fact, they said that if anybody tries to come after us, they will defend us. I'm like, okay, thank you, Mike. And I'm here today because of that. Well, we left there, we couldn't stay. Never got to spend time at Solomon's Pools. Well, we found out later on the next day, we found out when we had to take those vans back, we found out that those vans, the make, the model, the year, the color, everything about those vans was identical to the vans that the Israelis' troops used to move their troops throughout the country. Which meant that every one of those Palestinian kids, when they saw us, they did not see us, they saw our vans. And therefore they made the assumption that those people who are in the vans are Israeli troops and we're going to make their life miserable. That was, and I, I saw other things while we were there, but here's what I want to tell you. That was the amount of animosity that existed between those who were Israelis and those who were Palestinians. And sister, we didn't just... Uh, hear about it, we experienced it. I want to tell you that is the amount of animosity that took place between those who were Samaritans and those who were Jews in the time of Jesus. Now just because some of you do like closure, let me close on the Samaritan story. And those of you who know me, you, you may appreciate this, and those of you who don't, find those that know me. I decided after that experience I would go into the holy, the most holy, I mean the, uh, the oldest part of the city. It's called the Old City in Jerusalem. Went down into the Old City of Jerusalem and they made t-shirts here and I got a t-shirt made and it said, I got stoned in Samaria. 
so you can all pray for me. But my brothers and sisters in Christ, when I was there and saw that and read these passages and understood that in the day of Jesus, for him to say that he had to go to Samaria would be no different today than an American saying, I have to go hang around with Al-Qaeda. And this story resonates so deeply because of what Jesus did. You see, number one, for Jesus to go to that well, there, there's a part of the story that just really, really, I need to hear it. And maybe you need to hear it this morning, too. It's the part where it says about Jesus. Verse 6, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey. I was listening to a song this past week, an old Christian song entitled, He's All You Need, by Steve Camp. Part of it uses the language of sin-weary soul. And what I love about this story, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, is we have a Savior who is wearied by the journey. And if you are wearied by the journey of life, for whatever reasons, you have a Savior who has experienced that weariness. And you are not alone. And I will tell you, brothers and sisters in Christ, that I think if we as a church can learn to provide a safe refuge for people who are weary in the world that we live in today, we may find people really wanting to know more about the Sabbath. I am more and more convinced that my life really needs a Savior. And I mean it in a number of ways, including the reality that, let me pull it out. This thing will not dominate my life. Because I can be information weary. I know all you, forget millennials, you're beyond help now. You know, the next generation, Gen Z, whatever you want to call it. I really truly believe, brothers and sisters in Christ, we don't need more information in our life. We need to learn how to process the information we do have. Jesus sat down, wearied from the journey. And it was while he was wearied from the journey that he enacted a ministry that resonates in the world today. Here's what I mean. So Jesus is weary. He's at this very well-known well. He sits down in verse 7, as we've read. A woman of Samaria comes, and now you have to understand and you'll see at the end of the story, for those of you who cheat and already went to the end, the, the very powerful implication of this is that Jesus should not be in a public place with a woman. That's the second part. Number three, by himself. Do you realize that for Jesus to be in a public place with a woman by himself was enough for him to possibly be stoned to death? It was a violation of Jewish law, and it was a violation, at the minimum, it was a violation of the taboos of Jewish society. You don't do that. I have a friend of mine in the Middle East right now. I can't say where. But I talked with him about this. I said, so what happens if you were to go and have a conversation with a woman on the street? And he said, John, if somebody wanted to, they could arrest me and they could stone me. 
That's today. For Jesus to have a conversation with a woman by himself would at least, if he had been, if this had been in the context of Seventh-day Adventist Church, would have at least been worthy of being disfellowshipped. And all of the whispers would have, did you see Jesus? He was with a woman. And all that that entails in that day was enough that Jesus could have been literally shunned by his community. Huh. But then there's a second element. She was a half-breed Samaritan. How dare you have a conversation with a Samaritan? And that would have been enough to say, Jesus, don't ever come, don't ever, any of his disciples, when you get to the end of the story, you'll see what they say. Don't you ever, ever, ever hang around us anymore because we don't hang around those people. We don't talk to those people. We don't associate with those people. They are not of our kind, those people. And for you to do that, how could you disregard the traditions of Judaism? Who are you to do that? So brothers and sisters in Christ, here is Jesus at this well with this woman. So here's what I want to bring home to you today because I have just a few hours left. Young people, don't worry, it's not going to be that long. But here is the point that I want to drive home that I believe is the most significant part of what this story implies and possibly could mean for us today. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, we can no longer see people by what, by one element of their life. Now, let me make this very practical for you and very controversial. So, you know, if I'm not reelected, God is still good. <laughs> but I believe, brothers and sisters, there is a reason why this story is so powerful, why this book is so powerful, and why we need it today more than ever before. Because we live in a world that is easily divided by blue and red. We live in a world that is easily divided by are you an immigrant or not or uh, a non-immigrant, alien. We can easily live in a world where we decide, do you drive this car or that car? Or to use my favorite, are you a Mac person or a PC person? Folks, we live in a world today, perhaps more than ever in my life, that has divided people by a single characteristic. And if we as a church fall into the trap of dividing people by a single characteristic, we have fallen into the trap that Jesus came to destroy. And we can therefore no longer be the church of God if we are now dividing people by one single characteristic. And it could be, dare I say it, it could, dare, it could be possibly even by their sexual orientation. We don't associate with those people. I'll never forget, I was at a church one Sabbath. This was early in my ministry. And as a pastor, I like to, you know, I'm letting out a little secret here. I don't know if your pastor does it. So I was letting out, I was trying to find out where, my, where the congregation was. So I said, because this was actually happening in my life. I said, so, and I didn't tell him who it was. I said, just, just suppose one of our church members 
was building a relationship with a doctor who was sleeping around all week when he wasn't working as a medical doctor. And then him and I were playing racquetball on Sabbath, and we, I'm not on Sabbath, but we were starting to play racquetball together. Do you think it's okay for that individual to start hanging around with this person even though you know that his lifestyle is absolutely, completely gone from our lifestyle? And every person in that Sabbath school said, Pastor, we shouldn't be hanging around those people. You could become like them. I will never forget, as a pastor in another church, a girl in her 20s who was a barista working at a local coffee shop was brought by one of our young adults to our church. She came into our church, and she was not addressed in church attire. She came with multiple color hair, multiple, color, multiple uh, uh, piercings, a few tattoos, and a rather short skirt. And I'm in, my, I'm in the church, and suddenly somebody comes and taps me on the shoulder because I'm one of the pastors there. They said, can I talk with you? I said, sure. They said, we got a situation. This was, this was during Sabbath school time. I said, well, what is it? So, said, well, there's a, a visitor that came here today, and she was met by one of our members, and they, this man told her, you need to leave the church and go dress and then appropriately and then come back into the church. This is real stuff, my dear friends. So I immediately said, can you find who the person is? I went and talked to the other pastor. I said, can you go deal with the individual who had this conversation? Because we found out who it was. He said, you bet. I said, I'll go deal with the, this girl. So I finally found her. I first talked to the young adult who had brought her. I said, I wanted to make sure I got my facts correct. I said, is this what happened? He said, yeah. I said, where is she? She said, he said, she's sitting over there. So I went and sat next to her. I said, hello, my name is John Grice. I'm one of the pastors here. I understand you had a, a, an encounter here when you came into the church. She said, yeah. And I started asking her to make sure I understood correctly. And everything that I had heard from two different people was exactly her experience. And I said, listen. I said, I want to apologize for the behavior that you experienced in our church on this day. I want you to know that it does not matter what you dress, you are always welcomed in this place. And I said, I pray and I hope and I would understand, I mean, I pray and I hope that you will stay, but I will understand if you never want to come back again. And she said, Pastor, can I tell you a story? And I said, sure. She said, I didn't grow up a Seventh-day Adventist, but I grew up as a Christian. And my dad was a pastor. And I saw the way that the, the, my dad's churches treated him. And once I got of age, I said, I will never set foot in a church again. And then she said, with tears down her eyes, she said, this was the first time I've been in a church since I made that vow years ago and then tears were coming down my eyes and I said sister I am so sorry you are welcomed here anytime and if you ever have an experience like that again you let us know because that is not the church of Jesus now those of you who like endings there is no ending on the story because I left not too long after. 
But I know that all the time that I was there after that, she continued to come. I say this, my brothers and sisters, because sometimes even in our well-meaningness, meaningness, we can drive people away because we have defined them by one or two characteristics. And Jesus would not allow that person he met at the well be, to be defined by her femaleness. Otherwise, he never would have had the conversation. He would not allow her to be defined by her Samaritan nationality because he never would have had the conversation. And I want you to notice again what he starts with. He starts with something in this relationship that goes far beyond saying, are you a Seventh-day Adventist or are you not? I am amazed as I travel. Oops, sorry. Hope you still like me. I am amazed as I travel around the conference and when I worked at the North American Division, traveling around the North American Division and listening to church members ask me whenever they hear something, well, is that from a Seventh-day Adventist? Since when has something coming from a Seventh-day Adventist been the defining characteristic of God's church? There is something far more basic than the Seventh-day Adventist church. Do you realize, according to this story, there is something far more basic than being a female or a male? Do you realize that there's something far more basic than being a Samaritan or a Jew or Polish or Iraqi? There is something far more basic than that, and Jesus starts there because the eyes of God on this earth were looking and were able to see beyond what everyone else saw because I think the scripture says somewhere, man looks on the what? And God looks on the? Bam. I think the greatest prayer we could pray as a Seventh-day Adventist church is, God, help me to see the heart. Because notice what Jesus, how he begins this relationship with this Samaritan woman. What does he say? Verse 7. What is his request? He doesn't say, give me a Bible study. He doesn't say, well, tell me about you Samaritans. He doesn't say, well, what is it like for a woman who has been married five times, is living with a man that's not even her husband now to come by herself in the middle of the day, of the heat of the day, because you know all the women are gone, so you don't have to hear their gossip, to come here by yourself and get your water that you need for life. He doesn't start with that. He starts with a very basic question that is a question that could be posed to anybody in any part of the world. It doesn't matter who they are. And the question is about thirst. He doesn't start with, are you a Jew? He doesn't start with, which day do you believe is the Sabbath? He doesn't start with, well, do you believe that Jesus is coming before the millennium or after the millennium? Now, this is the one that I know will get me in trouble, but I'm leaving. Okay? But I believe it's biblical. There is language for it in the scriptures by Jesus' words. And here's what I want to remind all of us, because it doesn't matter how long you have been a Seventh-day Adventist. It doesn't even matter how long you've been a Christian. Here is what I want to say to you, because I believe this is the testimony of Scripture when you really stop and search for it, and it is this. 
that if what you believe about God does not make you more capable of seeing people first as human rather than as something else, then what you believe is really a doctrine of hell. So if my belief about the Sabbath does not make me more loving towards people who do not keep the Sabbath, then that doctrine becomes for me a doctrine of hell. If my belief about the second coming does not make me love people who are not ready for the second coming more and more, then my belief about the second coming is only making me a son of hell. Because the reality is God does not give us information to store here. God gives us information to transform us here. And Jesus knew that, and this is why Jesus, when he has the discussion with the women, with the woman, while she's always wanting to get back to theology, he wants to get to her. And we as Seventh-day Adventists, we are very good at using theology to deflect from morality of relationships. And this Jesus in this woman would not allow that to happen. And now here is truly, young people, my closing part. Okay? Here's what I want to remind you of. I hear this all the time. I've grown up as a Seventh-day Adventist, so I speak from that background as well. Maybe some of you have heard it. What is it that defines the remnant at the end of time? I've preached a sermon on like this. It'll be my last will and testament. Because I really believe it's not about knowledge. Do you realize why? Read Matthew chapter 24. Read the whole book of Revelation. Look at our world today. I really believe, my brothers and sisters, that what defines the remnant church at the end of time is not how much they know, but the love that is contained in their hearts for people who they do not like. Do you know why? Because the rest of the world, read it again. Matthew chapter 24, 2 Timothy chapter 3. The love of many shall what? If you read all the accounts of what the end is like, it is going to be so filled with hatred. What is going to define the people who are following Christ? It isn't the similar hatred. It is the complete opposite, which is an engaged, painful love for people regardless of who they are. So all the knowledge that we get studying our Bibles is to make us ready to be the loving people that God has so longed for a group of people that will stand against the hatred of the world and, yes, the hatred of the church because they love God more than man. And then they love man. So our preparation for the final crisis is not about knowledge. It is about who we are becoming right now. And if I can't learn to love now when things are easy, let me tell you, I just had that experience last night. Don't ask me why, because we're really crazy, my wife and I. We decided our life is too boring, so let's get a new puppy. <laughs> so we decided yesterday... My wife has been, my, not just my wife, I, I grew up with dogs, you know, I love dogs, but I know how much work they are. I know, sister, how much work they are. I ate the grape overnight. From 10 o'clock until 6 o'clock, whining, crying, whimpering all night long. 
How could I stand here? I have no idea. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, I say that because it doesn't matter how much sleep we get or don't get. The reality is that those realities that we experience in our life, our two-hour commutes or whatever it may be, all of that will all be part of our lives from here to the end. The question is, will I learn to demonstrate the love that God lives within me in those moments, or will I let my fatigue take over? And I ask myself the question again over and over, as I look at this passage and as I look at the scriptures, is the church of God becoming more loving or are we becoming more hated or hateful? Because I will tell you, the world I'm, I, I see more and more, and people I talk to here and there, and you can look at all the research that's done now, more and more people look at the church as a place of hate rather than a place of hope. Oh, and by the way, some of you may be saying, again, I'm leaving, so I can say this. You may be saying, well, of course, what makes that? I mean, every church teaches love. <laughs> I'm not going to argue with that. Every church, doesn't matter which Christian branch it is, teaches love. The question becomes, which one is actually loving? We don't need any more teaching and love. We need to live it. 